Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Sure, Peter Piper picked a pick of pickled peppers. We're all done with the gum chewing. It's over. She's an audio fucking professional. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 29th, 2018, the Not Off the Table edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Howdy, Emily. Hello, hello. And John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is in New York. Hello, John. Greetings and salutations. Ooh, Can you do that with a, Charlotte's a, Web. P, a P in there? No, 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 I cannot do it with a P. I'm not allowed to use uh, the, that sound. You could just say some pig. Some pig. <laughs> On this week's show. So we learned this week that Michael Cohen is a crook and Paul Manafort is a liar. Whoever could have guessed that. We will talk about the latest twists and turns in the Mueller investigation. Then the contentious battle between the Trump administration and the courts over asylum and also the battle between Donald Trump and Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, about whether there are, in fact, Trump judges or Obama judges. And then, is the 2020 census headed for disaster? Emily has a great piece about the goings-on in the census. We'll talk about that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And, of course, before we go any further, just a reminder, our Conundrum Live show is coming up just two weeks, December 12th, at NYU's Skirball Center in Manhattan. Slate.com slash live for tickets. It is going to be a Great show. Simon Doonan, judge for making it, is going to be joining us and puzzling through conundrums. I just was looking through the conundrums you've submitted. Dear listeners, please submit more, by the way, at, at SlateGabFest or email us at gabfest at slate.com with your conundrums. Um, so here are a couple that I liked. Which fictional news event occurring in a TV show or movie would you have wanted to cover? I love that question. I, I'm obsessed with it. Um, another one it's is... Particularly which particularly good m- question for journalists, no? Yes. Well, I think that's why it was posed to us, because I we are see. all journalists after a fashion. That's just me, me using my insight to guess that. Uh, <laughs> then, which is more important for a partner, a romantic or professional partner, intelligence or a sense of humor? That's a good one. Why choose? Get both. But if you had to pick one, I don't know. Anyway, slate.com slash live uh, to get tickets for our December 12th conundrum show. If you have a sense of humor, don't you have to be somewhat intelligent? I feel like those things kind of go together. Anyway, sorry, not to. We're going to dig into that. It's a, I, that's a really hard show, question. But I'm trying yeah. to think, like, could you really separate those two things? Okay. I, people without a sense of humor are really hard to be around. But it's they can really be intelligent. I just, right. Yeah. I just think if you have a sense of humor, maybe you have to be intelligent. Because having a sense of humor is about making connections between that's Concepts right. I mean, words. people who, pe- particularly people who make puns, uh, they are really at the top of the intelligence. <laughs> Especially unappreciated, ladder. sort of silent puns yeah, that go exactly. right by puns their that's, co-hosts. <laughs> that's right. Puns that's about exactly. Thailand, the st- Cambodia, the stealth, Siam, sure, any place like that. The, st- 
The stealth pun really is the sign of the, the highest, most rarefied intelligence. Uh, all right. As we start taping today, Michael Cohen has just apparently pled guilty to lying to Congress about Russia. John's going to fill us in on that in a second. Paul Manafort, who would probably con his own mother and lie to his priest, had his cooperation agreement with the Mueller investigation voided this week. He's going to be sentenced shortly, probably to something around 10 years in prison after Mueller's team concluded that Manafort had lied to them rather than honestly cooperated as he had promised to. Moreover, it turns out that Manafort's own lawyers have been colluding uh, eagerly with Trump's legal team, helping them with their legal strategy, helping them uh, fend off Mueller's questioning and Mueller's inquiries towards Trump. Trump, meanwhile, told the New York Post that a pardon of Manafort is not off the table. So, John, before we get to, to Manafort, um, Cohen is breaking as we're taping. What's going on there? Yeah. So uh, Thursday morning, Michael Cohen appeared in a surprise um, action. He pled guilty in Southern District of New York to making false statements to Congress. What were those false statements about? Well, a new topic it was related to his involvement in real estate deals in Russia on behalf of Donald Trump. At the hearing, Cohen's lawyer said that the judge uh, or told the judge that his client was entering a plea agreement with the special counsel, Robert Mueller. So that's different than what has been uh, happening before with Michael Cohen. His other business that we've heard about has to do with the the Southern District, but not with Mueller. So this is this is Mueller and this is about real estate dealings or trying to put together real estate dealings in in Russia. And he says he lied to Congress about it. So that's interesting on its own face. But the bigger thing that that raises, which is interesting, is that um, to me, it's two things. One, what the president and his family have said more than uh, 20 times, according to The Guardian, which did a, an accounting of this, which is that the president has repeatedly said as a candidate and president, he had no dealings with Russia of any se- any sort. So um, so he's and, and so, there, as I say, there have been these 20 denials. But then there's something even more, it seems to me, tantalizing, which is that the president sent a letter in May of 2017 to Lindsey Graham about this question uh, in which he claimed in his interview with Lester Holt that the letter said he had, quote, nothing to do with Russia. So obviously this might come to a present tense, past tense thing. But clearly the president was trying to suggest he never had anything other than a Miss, a Miss Universe pageant in Russia. Um, what Cohen is is asserting is that um, is that, that in fact there was a, a, a big effort to try to uh, put together a Trump Tower deal in Russia, which would uh, you know significantly change things. And also it shows where uh, Mueller is bestirring himself and moving. And also, last point, you imagine that Mueller asked a question on his uh, form to the president – what is the full and complete nature of your history with um, dealings in Russia? Uh, and uh, you may, you wonder what the president responded in that formal proceeding. Emily, take us to Manafort now. Just get us up to speed. So what is it that the Mueller team has concluded about Manafort and what are they doing to him? And then also let's talk about the fact that Manafort's own lawyers were meeting with Trump's lawyers. Manafort made a deal where he was supposed to cooperate and make a good faith effort to tell the truth. And that is um, what his sentencing, what the government's recommendations about his sentencing hinges on. The government threw in the towel or at least made a show of doing so this week, saying that Manafort has been lying to them. We don't know exactly, I don't think, what the lies consist of, but the government promised to file the detailed sentencing memo laying out those lies. That will be an interesting document, assuming that it's public. 
And then, yes, Manafort's lawyers continued to operate under a pact with Trump's lawyers even after Manafort pled guilty. It's common for co-defendants in the same case, you know, facing a similar set of factual charges to talk to each other, keep each other abreast of developments. It's very uncommon for an agreement like that to continue after someone pleads guilty because the idea is like you pled guilty in exchange for the information you're giving the government. You don't keep side dealing with your, you know, alleged co-conspirators because then the government will think you're not helping the government and the government will get mad and not help you at sentencing. So like you 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 switch sides when you plead guilty. That's supposed to be how it goes. But this of course is this very I'm going to use the word unique, a word I normally hate because it's never accurate it's, to say that it is true in this case unique, but i think it's unique like the alleged co-conspirator here is president trump and president trump alone among all of us mortals i believe has the power to pardon manafort for federal crimes and so manafort's lawyers kept briefing the president's lawyers to give trump and the president's lawyers a window into how uh, Mueller was operating and what manafort was and wasn't telling them etc And I think in all of this, what – well, look, I mean, there are a few possible explanations for Manafort lying to the government. One is that he just thinks his chances of getting a pardon from Trump are better than a good sentencing deal from the prosecutors, even with full cooperation. It looks like that's certainly part of his calculus right now. And the president's remarks – saying that, you know, a pardon is not off the table means a pardon is on the table and that Trump was eager to signal that to Manafort. And then there's this other possibility that has been out there for a while, which is that, like, Manafort is scared of someone or something out there and that fear and threat feels more present to him than going to prison for a long time. Like, there is some shadowy figure in his Ukraine-Russia past who he thinks is a threat to him or his family if he tells the truth to the government. And I used to be skeptical of this explanation because we just don't have any hard evidence for it. But his behavior isn't terribly rational unless you think that is somewhere in his mind, or at least like that seems much more plausible at this point, given what's happening. Really? The, the pardon strategy, the pardon angling seems like a very simple Occam's razor kind of explanation. So and the he's cooperating that... with the president. Mm-hmm. He's cooperating with the president. He's directly cooperating with the president in a way to he- benefit the president in a way that's signaling, please pardon me. And he, so the... I think... Go ahead. What's the problem with it? Well, the problem with it is that um, two things. One is that the prosecutors deliberately structured this plea deal and their charges so that it's like Swiss cheese. They left out a whole bunch of things that could be filed in state court as state crimes, especially in the state of New York, for example. And Donald Trump has no power to pardon anyone for a state crime. The second thing is that the plea deal is also structured in a way that all of Manafort's assets are subject to civil as well as criminal forfeiture. And that means I think the like estimated value is in the 40 million range, but whatever it really is, probably low. The government can get all of his money whether or not Trump pardons him. Now, maybe he doesn't care about his money, but he always seemed like a person who cared about his money. So given the state crime exposure and the idea that he can't save his assets, the the pardon has less value to him. And I suppose that's why I'm entertaining the the darker, um, you know, assassin conspiracy theory, which well, is still Well, but then why – if, if, the if the pardon has less value to him, why would he be – 
so blatant in his cooperation with the president's legal team. I mean, that's that's a signal. I mean, that's a that's about as you know beyond taking your clothes off and writing "I want a pardon" on your chest. <laughs> like, what what better way is there to signal that you want a pardon than to cooperate behind the back of the Mueller team? Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it does seem like that is what he's angling for. I just wonder if he's taking a bigger gamble with less value to him because there's this other darker threat looming in his mind. I don't have any but, proof of this. I just wonder but, about it. Anyway, John. Just to be clear on the on the Mueller, I mean, on the Manafort uh, benefits of a pardon, not benefits of pardon. So the assets are gone, but he still keeps out of the Huskow, right? For wouldn't now, that be the benefit of getting a pardon? Until... But wouldn't that be the benefit? Yes, that would be. But then, right, except that Trump has to pardon him in the short term before state prosecutors can start going after him or at least finish going after him, right? So right. there's also the timing problem. And maybe Trump is ready to do that. The elections are over. He figures if he does it in the next few months, by the time 2020 rolls around, like nobody's going to remember or care, I, I guess. I, I, that's well, the look, that's the bet. I also, the, the one problem I think that the real profound problem with relying on Trump to pardon you is that who would ever trust Trump to do that? Like, right. What is Manafort? I mean, Manafort is, is cooperating. He's, he's, he's helping out Trump. But ultimately, Trump has no loyalty to anyone. He is going to protect his own skin. And if he perceives, yes, that Manafort is a threat and that a way to inoculate that threat is to pardon him, he would surely do it in a second. But if he, doesn't, if he, if he gets the benefit of Manafort's cooperation, which it seems like he's gotten, then just why bother with the hassle of pardoning him? Why why take the the hit? Well, especially if there are all these other threats elsewhere, right? Like Michael Cohen popping up, Jerome Court. There are all these like new figures in the store, not new, but like Roger Stone is perennially involved there. It's not as if containing the Manafort threat is like the end of the story, right? Can I just, um, on the Cohen front... So there's this is obviously breaking news. So it's hard to figure out all the different ways in which this is important. But I think I have two, two big things for me come out of it. One, so Michael Cohen lied to Congress. So now we got to see what Congress is going to do to respond um, and, and to protect its, um, you know, authority. And there's been the, obviously the the majority has been in a lot of ways supine to the president. They were not and have not been uh, on uh, the reaction to Saudi Arabia. So it'll be interesting to just watch that from a kind of um, co-equal branch perspective. But also, did the president know his personal lawyer was lying to Congress? Um, there's no evidence from the pleading that he instructed Cohen to lie to Congress. But uh, that's sort of interesting. And what, is, what does Mueller have on that front? But then the second thing is that um, we have, there is a ton of lying going on here. So we have Paul Manafort lying repeatedly um, in his behavior. We have Jerome Corsi talking about how he lied uh, to the special counsel um, and Jerome Corsi and uh, and Roger Stone have lied uh, about their relationship with WikiLeaks. And now we have Michael Cohen saying that he lied to Congress about Russia. Uh, what he has now told the special counsel, and by the way, in this plea agreement, it, it suggests that Mueller has gotten enough from Cohen that he would uh, accept a plea agreement because this was not a part of Cohen's original. There was no agreement co to cooperate in the previous plea by Cohen. 
so Cohen's done a whole bunch of lying and that lying uh, he now about what was going on in Russia exposes these 20 instances in which the president and others have lied about their uh, business dealings in Russia. When there is that much tonnage of lying, I mean, the notion that there's nothing else going on, that people far and wide are all lying about things and that there's no there's no fire. This is all just smoke without fire would be an astronomical oddity in the in the course of human behavior that so many people would lie so much and so often about something for no reason. All true. Can I say one more thing about the pardon? Because I feel like this is important to say. It will rock the Justice Department if Trump pardons Paul Manafort. Like that is a very big deal to mount this enormous prosecution, a big trial, a huge effort. This involves dozens of people, investigators, lawyers. You know, there are certain things that we sort of talk about casually as if like, yeah, sure, Trump can just you know, sign a piece of paper. And it's true. He has the power to do that. But it's important to remember that the institutional ramifications for the government are huge. It, it is. I want to concur with that, Emily. It's absolutely shocking that we have a man in Manafort who has been convicted of financial crimes on a vast scale, who is, you know, suspect in crimes around manipulating the election, who is pled guilty to those crimes. And he is now colluding with the president of the United States, who's in charge of the Department of Justice and the president's lawyers to help the president suppress, obstruct, damage a federal investigation about foreign interference in our election. I mean, it's just if you if you if you told us five years ago, seven years ago that the president was going to be doing that, we would have been we would have laughed at it. It would have been like a joke. And that this is, you know, nothing, nothing. There'll be no consequence of this. And, and I mean, one point I wanted to ask you about, Emily, in terms of the pardon is if Trump pardons Manafort, let's say. That's an impeachable offense. I mean, arguably, it's a it's an abuse of the pardon power. It's a clearly trying to obstruct and delay and, and mess with this federal investigation of him. I mean, you, I think you, you can make a very credible case that's a, an impeachable offense. But there's no, there's no mechanism to punish him. It's not a crime that, he could, that Trump can be punished for except by impeachment and conviction. And we all know that is an impossibility. Probably. I mean, there does start to be a moment where the case for obstruction of justice becomes, you know, more and more both uh, elaborate and also airtight. And while we all kind of march to this idea that because the Justice Department in various legal memos has said that prosecutors don't have the power to charge the president, that Mueller is going to abide by that. And I still think that's very likely. But, you know, when you start to have this kind of really bare knuckles, blatant talk, uh, not just not talk, you'd have to be action, right? If Trump actually did this, I think that would unsettle um, a lot of people who care about the rule of law. The problem will be if Republicans, especially in the Senate, who seem determined to block any kind of legislation that would protect Mueller, if they continue to sort of hand wave at this and dismiss it, then that cues a lot of other people to dismiss it too, including the right wing media. And so that's the sort of bizarre shape of this, right? I mean, it shouldn't take a criminal indictment of President Trump to drive home to everyone how serious this is in all the ways you were saying. And yet, because that one thing might be off the table, it's as if all the political actors can't take it seriously enough. John, I want to close with one question, which is we've we've focused a lot on, you know, threats to Trump here. 
Uh, it does. There's a there's a counter argument, which is that Manafort has just played Mueller, and that Manafort has strung Mueller along, and that Manafort has has exposed Mueller's strategy and exposed Mueller to get you know given away the secrets of what Mueller's up to to the Trump team. Is it possible that Mueller, who is a deeply honorable, play by the rules fellow, by the books person, has been duped, and that it didn't? He's playing with people who who will mess with him and play dirty and angle and manipulate a system which is which actually doesn't work in the way that Mueller has always counted on it working. I my guess is that uh, there is an alternative view which is that Mueller having been around the Mulberry bush a few times in life and his prosecutors in particular participating in ongoing activity with these kinds of people uh, having busted Manafort for lying at the kind of outset of this investigation, of uh, which led them to do that no-knock uh, raid on his house because they knew he was lying, has known all along and has uh, has either known all along or has made it his operating principle all along that, that Manafort is A, lying, and that everything he tells them or learns from them, he goes back and tells the president. And so has been operating on that, and I think you could imagine that he has been operating on it at such a level that he, in fact has tried to use that to his advantage, you could imagine. I'm not sure exactly how you would do that, but I could imagine ways in which you in which you would to try to knock loose further information uh, from the from um, uh, other players in this case. Um, so I think that um, I would be su- really surprised if uh, this came as a shock to him at all, frankly. Only one person is playing 12-dimensional chess here, and it's Robert Mueller. We've invested such faith in him. Emily, do you agree with I don't know with- whether I agree with John or not. I want to think that that's what is happening. I definitely agree that it's not a surprise. How big a deal it is, how much they were relying on Manafort to tell the truth in order to get other people, it's just really hard to tell because we just don't have a complete picture of what they know and what they don't know. We should wrap up. Do either either of you want to explain to me something I was found absolutely impossible to understand because I'm dumb and the the reading was confusing? What, who, what is Jerome Kersey? What is a Jerome Kersey? <laughs> and what on earth is going on with Jerome Kersey? If we don't, if neither of you can explain it in less than 30 seconds, let's just skip it. He's the DC bureau chief for InfoWars, David. That's like an esteemed position in journalism. That, of course, is Alec Jones's conspiracy mongering site. He's also a friend of Roger Stone, and he is involved to some degree in some some machinations with Julian Assange and the whole issue of WikiLeaks spilling lots of John Podesta and other emails from the DNC that hurt Hillary Clinton in the election. He's there. And he also is someone who thought that by deleting his emails, including emails, by the way, in which he was discussing basically how to cover all of this up, that the emails would go away and he would be safe. And that turns out not to be true. So... A warning to those of you who think deleting your emails means that they are really gone forever. They are not. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. We are going to bonus you up this week. We're going to talk about the question, if one of us, if each of us could reverse one action, one decision, one event, change one, one thing that happened in American political history, what would it be and why would we do that? So we're going to play counterfactual with you. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member to get Slate Plus today.
This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Trump administration's attack on asylum is at the heart of a series of conflicts this week. U.S. officials tear gas several hundred migrants attempting to cross the border in Tijuana, people who had been frustrated by the slow pace of, of asylum processing uh, over there. The administration also announced that it was going to bar any asylum application not made at a port of entry, a sort of an official crossing place, which is difficult because of something else that's going on, which is that at a ports of entry, there's, a, there's a, now a policy of metering which is essentially that the port of entry will take a certain number of asylum applicants each day, and that is all. And it won't, will, and sort of doles that out in a not very uh, transparent and not very uh, numerous way. That has caused huge waits for thousands of migrants at ports of entry seeking asylum. A judge in the Ninth Circuit suspended this ban, uh, which in turn caused President Trump to attack. Obama judges, and then in turn caused Chief Justice Roberts to parry back that there are no Obama judges. So few. Uh, Emily, let's start with you. What What is this multi-pronged attack on asylum and what's its basis in law? Is it, is it justified? And the, the Trump administration seems to think asylum is being abused by lots of people, particularly migrants coming up from Central America, and they want to limit its use. Is that attempt to limit it justifiable? The the current court case over the Trump administration's just saying, like, sorry, no more applying for asylum outside of ports of entry. And, oh, by the way, we're, like, really limiting it there, too. That's not allowed. Like, or at least it is contradicting the actual text of a law, right? I mean, when you look back at what Congress said about applying for asylum, Congress said ports of entry or somewhere else. And so, you know, the judge, Judge Tiger. The district court judge who who Trump is lambasting made a kind of joke at the hearing about this where he was like, if, you know, a law says that you can get to the courthouse by any mode of transportation and then the police come along and say, you can't ride your bicycle. Like, is that legal? I mean, that was the analogy he was drawing. So I don't think that this order has legs. It's sort of like the first version of the travel ban. It's, it's just ham-handed. And I don't think the government... I don't think the point of it was actually to stop asylum. It was to um, make a show. What is more 
serious and maybe interesting is this whole idea of making a deal with Mexico to make people who've applied for asylum wait in Mexico while their cases are being processed, a a process that can take years. You know, what mostly happens now is people show up at the border. They have to have an interview where they prove they have a credible fear of going home. Not that hard to get past the credible fear barrier. Once you're past it, you can be detained in the United States, but we don't have the capacity to keep everybody detained. And if you have kids, you can only be detained um, or your kids at least can only be detained with you for a short amount of time. And so most people pending asylum applications are out on bond. Sometimes they wear ankle bracelets. Almost all of them come back to their hearings. In the end, only 20 percent of them get asylum. But all of that takes place over the course of years in someone's life inside the United States. If that process gets moved to Mexico, that is going to change the calculus for some asylum seekers. And that is what the Trump administration is super eager to do. You know, to give a little more context here, unauthorized immigration in the United States is stable, right? We're not having some, like, huge influx of people compared to other years. What we are having are more people coming from Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador who are fleeing violence there and who are presenting themselves for asylum. There's a huge rise in asylum applications. And a lot of those people kind of ironically, have concluded from the last months of news about family separations that it's actually helpful to have a child with you at the border, um, that that's not going to get you sent home right away. There's some weird way I feel like the Trump administration's family separations policy ended up boomeranging. And so we're seeing a lot more of those people. And of course, this is totally at odds with the image President Trump wants to present of being tough at the border. And so that's the tension and the conflict here. It's not like some huge overall rise in numbers. It's a rise among a particular subgroup of people seeking asylum. Why does that boomerang not... That boomerang seems um, consistent to me, which is that the president tried to use the family separation as a deterrent effect, but since it didn't stick, the message that was sent was even this president can't stop you if you have... uh, a child with you. So that's the trick. Yeah, that's that could be a totally plausible reading. I guess what I wonder is if we hadn't had all the publicity and all the hoopla to begin with, if fewer people would have gotten it into their minds, like, oh, let's make this really dangerous long journey with a child. You know, it's just sort of surfaced all of that. But I maybe I'm reading the wrong things into it and it's more straightforward. Can I make a, a probably extremely unpopular point? which is the point of asylum is that people have a credible fear of violence against them in their home country. And I, I absolutely believe that all the people who are fleeing Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador have a credible fear of violence. There's lots of reporting about how dangerous those countries are and for, you know, for particular subsets of people, why it might be particularly dangerous. I do not, for the life of me, understand why the United States is therefore implicated in this. They, once they have left their home country and they've crossed into Mexico or crossed into a, another country, when, Mexico is a relatively safe place. Like their credible fear of violence in their home country is is gone. They're in Mexico. Like they're not in their home country. And I don't see why the United States has to take on that fear. I, don't, I just don't understand it. Like they, they, if, if they're what they're seeking is asylum, an escape from the violence in their home country, they have found it by getting into Mexico. Now, their conditions in Mexico are not particularly good. The economic conditions are not particularly good. Their economic prospects are not nearly as good as they would be in the U.S. probably. But that doesn't 
that does not justify the United States being the asylum giver of for everyone. It should be the asylum giver for people who have no other place to get asylum. It's not the asylum giver to anyone who can make it to the to the borders of the United States. That seems like a that seems like an invitation to invite people who are like partly economic migrants and partly uh, people migrating out of fear to sort of say, oh, the U.S. is the best place to, to get the advantage. That's why the Remain in Mexico plan, um, like I'm sure it has all kinds of really bad implications for these migrants and, and the, their complexities, but it, it doesn't raise any hackles with me. It doesn't doesn't raise alarm bells with me. I think the counter argument is a, is a moral one, is that a country of such prosperity and who seeks to do good in the world lends a hand to those who are particularly oppressed and and those intermediate countries that you named are not in a position to do that. And so that this is a this is a strictly a, Mexico uh, has Mexico has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of non-Mexicans who live there and work there. Now, they don't make as much money as those same people would make if they were in the United States. And they're probably not as get, nice to the people who are, as they would be in the United States. Well, but, but that, right. But so the, isn't the isn't isn't the counterargument a moral one, which is when a person seeking refuge from uh, the horrors of their home country knocks on your door, that you want to be a person who welcomes them in because that's the kind of country you want to be. I mean, that's the counterargument. The yeah, but, counterargument but to that is that's a miles good, past, They've walked two thousand miles past a lot of other doors to get to your door because. Your door is more attractive because there, isn't the, there's better food at but, your door. But and isn't the right. counter argument anybody who's li- anybody who's willing to walk that two thousand miles um, is uh, that we that the United States offers a, a kind of hope that other countries don't, and that this is a part of uh, you know part of American exceptionalism. Um, I mean, this is the. This yeah, is the counter argument. The counter argument to that is in a country where you have scarce resources and where you have uh, 300 million people, many of whom face uh, all kinds of difficulties I, and complications I, I, in their do, lives because you don't have yeah. unlimited resources. Yeah. While it's a nice moral thing yeah. to do, um, you have to allocate those resources um, you know, do, differently because John, you don't have unlimited resources. Yeah, do, And don't get me wrong, John. I, I believe that the United States should be open vastly more to all kinds of immigrants and in, in all kinds of ways. And that there should be, you know, much more tolerance and there should be, you know, uh, you know, DACA is a first step. I mean, just in, in every way, I believe that immigrants strengthen the country, make us better. I, what yeah. I don't think, what I don't, but in this particular case, weirdly, I feel like people, this is a cheat around a system. These are people who are fundamentally economic migrants who are using, using a, a, a loophole in the system to, try to get into the United States. I mean, most of them, as Emily points out, fail, but to try to get into the United States because the, these other mechanisms don't work. And if they are, if they're truly, if what they truly want is asylum, the United States is not the only country or even the most sensical country to provide it. And so that's, it's, that just makes me uncomfortable that we, well, we I think don't you're, talk about that contradiction. That that that. Well, I think you're, I, I think there's nothing wrong with you raising the contradiction. I guess what I what, but it seems like you're mixing bunches here. So if I, if if somebody doesn't have a true claim to asylum and they're just using asylum as a way to sneak in, that's one basket. But then it seems to me uh, a different it raises the moral c- pressure more when you've got you know a family whose young son is going to get brought into a gang and has tried to resist the gang and is hiding out in a sanctuary in order to resist the gang and you flee that, 
that seems to me to raise the moral questions higher. Your argument is, well, once you've crossed the border, you're okay. It's so it seems to me like there are a couple of things in play here in terms of like history and then international law and, and our law. So historically, you know, modern asylum comes from post-World War II horror at all the people who got turned away, especially the Jews on the ships who nobody would let disembark, who went back to Europe and were killed in the Holocaust. Like that scar remains with us. And that's where the modern law of asylum comes from. When you go back to its origins, you know, it talked about fear of persecution on the basis of um, national origin and race and ethnicity and also being part of a particular social group or having um, unpopular political views. And in American law, this question of who's in a particular social group who deserves asylum has broadened since we started granting asylum. And what's become particularly contested between the Obama years and the Trump years are these categories of especially women who are victims of domestic violence, and then the kids you were just talking about, John, who are targeted by gangs. And I think a lot of how you feel about the question of these people queuing up at the border or trying to make asylum claims goes back to whether you think people suffering from those harms. So those are real threats of violence, right? Like we would all agree that is some scary shit. Yes, but 100%. and then the question is like, does it count as an asylum claim? And if it does count, what are the limits? And then you know, to your point, David, about like which country do people wind up in? I mean, this is a big question that the international order has been grappling with since the fifties in terms of refugees. And so part of what you're talking about is like, so think of all the millions of people trying to flee Syria. Most of them wind up in the border countries like Turkey, which are not really where they want to go. But those countries are kind of able more cheaply to keep people And then some of those people get really desperate because they're in not great circumstances in refugee camps, and they try to make the journey to Europe or to some other, you know, wealthy country where they think their lives are going to be better. And there always are these tensions. And we're just basically seeing the same thing play out on our continent domestically that we've been watching happening in Europe. And one thing that I keep wondering about, and I am, like, really not an expert on Central American politics or history, but... (laughs) Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, these are small countries. It just seems to me like there is a solution here that just has to do with making those countries function better. We were reading something for the show today by George Shultz, who was the Secretary of State under the Bush administration, and he was talking about, you know, basically like – doing the standard things that the IMF and other international entities do to stabilize failing countries where, like, you give them money, but you tie it to anti-corruption measures. I think the specific problem for that region is the American war on drugs and the whole problem we've tried to a million times, you know, shut down the supply chain. And we, we fail every time. And so we keep enriching these, you know, drug lords who are destabilizing and add to all this gang violence and create it in the, this region. But I just feel like there is some more sensible, pragmatic political solution here that that like we're not even talking about because we're keep worrying about these people standing at the border who are the super desperate people who are willing to like stand in line in the rain for weeks. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Emily. I remember going, I mean, I've been to Guatemala, which is amazing country, amazing, amazing, interesting, marvelous country. 
But the sense of menace in the air in that country was unlike any place I'd ever been. The sense of that it has such a deep history of violence and of conflict. I mean, you know, in, indigenous people versus the colonial powers that dates back a long time. And then the kind of United Fruit uh, Banana Republic history of it. And then drug gangs and and war, you know, right-wing, left-wing wars. It's at every, across every kind of axis, there's violence that has pervaded the society. And it's really hard to sort of declare a stop to it. I mean, the only country in the region that has done a really good job there is Costa Rica because it, for a variety of lucky accidents, basically just avoided all the pitfalls, all the really pernicious problems that these other countries face. And Costa Rica is the most peaceful country in the world, essentially. But everywhere else is in that region is really troubled. Yeah, but I agree. Let me that- th- let me throw in two other things that that are a part of the mix. Emily had the had the more recent history about this, but I mean, if you there is there's got to be some portion of America's um, feeling of responsibility over its history to the persecuted refugee, and that the pilgrims were persecuted refugees. I mean, they were fleeing religious persecution themselves. So there's a yeah, they would have definitely qualified for asylum, right? They were going to get killed <laughs> if they didn't leave, and they were trying to practice their I left religion off of the list. I think erroneously. Yeah, you're you're not supposed well, to. Well, and there's another. I'm not religion. against asylum. I think and people no, no, should no, asylum no, should or beacon unto the world. David, David, I just nobody I, nobody accused you of that. You're now you're now feeling you're like we're doing to you crouch, what, what always happens. Emily's to me. like like David Plotz Hold turning on. away boats full of Holocaust. No, no, that's not true. Hold I on, Emily. That. Let me jump in here. That's totally not <laughs> what she was saying. A and B refutation of your argument isn't to uh, or an additional. Uh, piece of evidence is not like a moral claim about you nor so anyway that's insane but uh, i would say one (laughs) other thing is that um one thing that strikes me about this whole debate from this moral point of view is that um i mean there is basically on the anniversary of dorothy day's death no stronger message from jesus than help the poor suffering refugee i mean it's a pretty much you got to really work to find some things in the Bible that support certain kinds of behavior, but you don't have to work very hard at all to uh, get direct testimony from Jesus about this very specific thing. And so uh, I'm always interested to see in which in the places in which people uh, line up who are followers of Jesus relative to the politics of this issue. I love but, it. When uh, but John, surely that's a part of America's tradition. I love it when John brings Jesus into these conversations. It warms my <laughs> non-Catholic heart. <laughs> uh, liberal Catholics. Well, I'm not speaking for you in in the political sense, John, but in the in the the his, the, the the tradition of Catholic uh, good works. That's a great American tradition. It's one of the best. I think it's international. Um, I don't think Americans can lay claim to that solely. John can correct me. Well, there's an there's a strong American tradition of it. Dorothy Day being class A example. Before we leave this, I just want to go to one political issue. In his attack on Judge Tiger, the judge who blocked his asylum ban or his mini asylum ban, President Trump attacked the Obama judge, which in turn caused Chief Justice Roberts to sally back with a reply that there are no Obama judges or Trump judges. They're just judges doing good work. So, John, what did you make of that? I mean, isn't the whole point of the last several years is that there are 
in fact, Obama judges and Trump judges that the the project of so much of both administration, you know, of this administration, of previous administrations is to ensure that there are judges who are on your team? Yeah, I I, uh, I had three reactions. One um, is the first one you had, which is, yes, clearly the, pro- the project on the right has been since really the Reagan administration to have a systematic uh, relationship between to basically run on the idea that you're going to you're going to put certain kinds of judges in office. Um, and then that has gotten and we saw the culmination of that strategy when President Trump essentially ran and people uh, ran on the idea that he was going to be able to name new Supreme Court justices. And a lot of people who had concerns about him voted for him, nevertheless, simply on that single issue. So it feels like you have a straight line from the Reagan era to President Trump. Now, what conservatives would say is, yes, there is a programmatic march on the on the conservative side, which was a response to the de facto fact that you had with the Warren court and the and the liberal years of the Supreme Court a relationship between Democrats and liberals and the court it was not so systematic and so designed as it has been on the conservative side but that there we've had this for a very long time I think the second thing I would say is I thought Ross Douth had had a great piece about this which not only essentially said this which is that Trump is just saying something that we all know to be true and I thought what was interesting about his piece was it also teed up a, a framework for all analysis during the era of Trump which is when Donald Trump says something like this, is he merely peeling back the thin veneer of propriety that covers up something we all know to be true? Or is he saying something that is an actual threat to the judiciary? And so that's always, to me, an interesting question with, with Donald Trump. The third thing I would say is Peter Dreyer, Dreyer's point. Is that, is that yep. how you pronounce his name? Who had, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, but I thought it was an interesting uh, take, which was essentially that John Roberts is playing a very long game and he is a very conservative uh, uh, Supreme Court, um, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And he knows that in order to continue being a conservative, uh, he needs to maintain this notion of impartial judges. And so he's saying this in a very public way Maybe because he believes it, but also because it will help retain a certain amount of legitimacy in the court so that it can continue doing its conservative things without creating public riots, uh, you know, for the next 50 years. Yeah. I mean, that you did such a good job of laying out the various viewpoints on this. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but it is definitely a benefit to Chief Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts and his agenda to have people continuing to believe that judges are different from politicians. And I think that was the kind of note he was trying to sound here. And it's useful to him, too, to be seen in some way as an antagonist of President Trump's, just rhetorically speaking, because it makes him seem independent. And I feel like there's this increasingly narrow piece of ground that defenders of the court, or at least people who aren't willing to totally give up on the Supreme Court, are trying to stand on, which is to say, like, yes, it's become much more partisan, the appointments process has, and we should all be wary of what this ideologically split five versus four court is going to do and be willing to analyze its decisions in politically partisan terms if we think that's what's happening. And yet, lots of us still want to preserve the concept of judicial 
independent review, the idea that the court gets to say what the Constitution is. We think of that, we've come to think of it as a pillar of the American democratic system ever since the Supreme Court took that power for itself in Marbury versus Madison, right? It's not in the Constitution, but it's always been a part of our system. And there's a real tension there in trying to be honest in a kind of legal realism way about how the court operates and is likely to increasingly operate and also not wanting to say like, oh, the Supreme Court, it's just the same as a bunch of politicians. They're not doing any law there whatsoever because that feels like it would be a real loss to the American system. Right. And where you put the pin down to to me is one of the fundamental questions of the of the Trump era. Let me see if I can make a link to Saudi Arabia. Yes, I was so thinking about it has that been too. The, Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, excellent. Good. Well, you can make <laughs> keep me from going too far, which is we know that administrations both Republican and Democratic administrations have known about the civil rights abuse, the human rights abuses of perpetrated by the Saudi Arabians, and yet they have continued to do business with and coddle and, and allow them to get off the hook and sell them planes and, and, and munitions. So this has always been both Republicans and Democrats have made that deal. What the president did was make the same kind of deal. Now, you can argue, obviously, there wasn't a bone saw murder that uh, was out in the open. And so the specific facts of the case are different. So I grant that. But The president essentially said a lot of things out loud in his explanation for uh, why the administration was going to stay, you know, essentially as close as always to Saudi Arabia, despite knowing about this murder. He said out loud a lot of stuff that we know. We know that President Obama, for example, didn't call it a military coup in Egypt because he knew that would kick in certain kinds of congressional responses. So he just basically did it on the sly. And this has been a part of U.S. foreign policy. So how much more, what portion of what the president is doing is saying out loud stuff that used to just be whispered? And then what portion is actually new challenges to traditions and values of America? I'm not saying that there are no new challenges, but I'm wondering, you've got to, it seems to me, account for both portions here uh, and not say it's all a grand new challenge because that is just imprecise. Yeah. I mean, all the like attacks on the special prosecutors of witch hunt, that feels to me like a new challenge, just and a challenge to the rule of law that we should take seriously. But I had the right. same reaction about Saudi Arabia, John. I was reading an editorial in The Wall Street Journal condemning Trump's remarks about Khashoggi's murder in Saudi Arabia. And what the journalist said was, you know, Never in modern history has a president not sounded a single grace note about human rights. So, okay, so like basically the objection is stylistic, right? The, you know, the United States can be as ruthless and pragmatic about propping up autocratic regimes and making deals with them and making money as it wants to be. It's just supposed to continue in a pious way chiding them about human rights on the side, right? Like that is not a satisfying answer. And yet, I also think that when someone like Trump comes along and, you know, calls things what they are, there's a way in which the president saying that creates the reality of it, too, and gives more space to someone like, you know, like MBS in Saudi Arabia to to do whatever he wants to do. So it's I feel like it's all a little blurry. Like, I I appreciate your effort to put things into categories, but I also think the categories kind of blur into each other. No. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that that's one of the things that we all noticed about the Trump world generally is that actually it's not that there's all some fundamental human behavior that that exists and Trump is the only one willing to talk about it. It's that Trump talking about certain things in certain ways causes that causes lots of things to shift. And 
allow, gives people license to do things that they never would have done otherwise because because it's been spoken out loud or spoken in such raw, grotesque terms. Right. And if you're more radical on either the left or the right, you can welcome it because it can maybe if people understand like just how um, hypocritical we are about Saudi Arabia, they'll be horrified and they'll do something about it. So there is that. If you want to blow things up, it's useful. But if you more think like, okay, so we didn't – so Obama didn't call the coup in Egypt a coup. But like, eh, we can't solve every problem. Then you find it unsettling. And I also want to hasten anybody who would think that identifying previous breaches that are in the same category as the kind that we're seeing in the moment is not to excuse what we're seeing in the moment. It's just to understand exactly where the point of departure is. For example, we know that previous presidents have said things out loud they know not to be true. We know that this president does it much more regularly when he doesn't really have to um, and in ways that threaten significant portions of the American system. So to say that other presidents have done it too is not to excuse, but in fact to stay focused on what exactly is new so that you can examine whether what is new is a real departure and therefore something to be exercised about or not. So, But it's not to say that just because it's happened before that absolves all new departures. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The census, the 2020 census, it is in big trouble. It is underfunded. There is increasing suspicion, especially among minority communities that feel threatened by the Trump administration. Suspicion that the government might use the data in ways that would be harmful to them. And then there's the fact that the Trump administration, urged on, egged on by the Bannon wing of the Republican Party and white nationalisty nationalisty elements of their party, have ordered the inclusion of a question about whether the census respondent is a citizen in the census. The feeling among most people who've looked at this is that that will dampen response among non-citizens who are supposed to be counted by the census, and it will make people scared of the census and and then in turn we'll have all kinds of knock-on effects that Emily is going to tell us about. That citizenship question is now the subject of a federal trial in New York, I think, and Emily has just Maybe written about it for the New York Times magazine. And what what is it that is at stake in this trial, Emily, and why why does the citizenship question matter? Right. So The citizenship question would be the 11th question on the census. And introducing it in 2020 would mean introducing it at the same time that the census is trying to pull off a huge shift and get most of us to respond to the census online. So when you hear from the census in spring of 2020, 80% of us about are going to get a postcard in the mail that doesn't have the census questions on it. Instead, it's going to have a unique number and it's going to ask you to enter that number online and answer the questions there. If you don't respond, like you can also call in. It's not that that's the only route. And about 20% of American households, especially people who they're worried don't have great broadband access, are going to get the questionnaire mailed. But the census is trying to pull off this huge shift while, as you said, it's underfunded 
And they've also budgeted less staff to less fewer field workers to make fewer visits because they think that this they're taking a big gamble, essentially, that this whole online shift is going to work and is going to save them money by reducing the need for follow up visits. Um, And all of that is we're all supposed to feel like our data is going to be secure. Right. Um, So I don't know. Think about that for a second. Like some of the people I've just friends of mine, I've talked about this and been like, wait, I'm supposed to put my name and address and answer these basic questions like online. Why would I feel like that's a safe thing to do? Presumably the census will start some kind of paid marketing campaign to persuade us that our data is safe. It says that our data is safe, but that hasn't really happened yet. So in that context, last year, the census started running focus groups in which it um, was asking people how they felt about the census. And spontaneously, a lot of people, um, some of them Spanish speakers and Arabic speakers, but also English speakers, just started spontaneously saying, I'm really worried about this. They talked about like having to register with the government. They mentioned the Muslim ban. They talked about ICE and deportations. And they were clearly skeptical of the notion that the census information they give out, which after all, right, is their home and their address, is going to be truly safe from these other government agencies. Now, I can stop right here and tell you, like, legally speaking, it is a crime for the government to divulge census data without authorization. And that includes the Census Bureau giving it over to ICE and the FBI. But that doesn't mean everyone's really going to believe that right now. And given all the anti-immigrant... And and actually, and also, Emily, just to put put a parentheses in there. Yeah. Isn't there a famous notorious incident in American history where that the Census Bureau used census information to target uh, Japanese Americans for internment? Yes, that happened in 1942. The War Department came to the census and asked for block by block data. And then in 1943 for like individualized data. And that was part of how Japanese Americans got rounded up. Japanese Americans suspected that for decades and accused the census of handing over their data illegally. And the census denied it all the way up to the year 2000, at which point some academics published an article with archival proof that the Japanese American suspicions were correct. And at that point, the director of the census apologized. But we do have that lie and ugly history that is part of our history. So I I sort of hate to raise all this. I feel it's such a struggle because the thing is not responding to the census is a disaster for you and your own community. Because what we do with census data is we use it to allocate hundreds of millions of dollars of federal taxpayer money. And we also use it to do political apportionment. So if a community of people doesn't respond to the census, that means that their city and county and community get fewer resources. And it means that they're not counted for the purposes of political representation. That's like a big problem. So I feel like there's this like terrible conundrum here that the Trump administration is, I think, trying to take advantage of, which is that you have to trust the government in order to get your share effectively. But if you don't trust, you might have perfectly good reasons not to trust the government. Like, it's not crazy to worry about this. And that's the sort of game that it gets played when you give people more reasons to fear answering the census. Asking about citizenship on a very short form, that question is going to pop out to people. Here's your home. Here's your address. Maybe you have people living in your house who aren't citizens, who aren't supposed to be here legally, or you're just nervous that, you know, we also have had reports of the government trying to take away citizenship from some people who've been naturalized, who get accused of fraud after the fact. Like, 
it it doesn't – I imagine to a lot of people when you get this form in the mail, it might not seem like that big a deal to just toss it if you have any suspicion about your – that you could come to harm or someone you know would come to harm, even though if lots of people do that, it has this collective bad impact on them effectively. So in this case, Emily, what is it that – who are the plaintiffs? What are they trying to prove and what happens if they win and if they lose? The plaintiffs in New York, there are two sets of plaintiffs. There are 18 state attorneys general who have sued. And their argument is like, hey, we, the states of you know New York, California, et cetera, et cetera, are going to lose resources if there's this big undercount. And we think it's clear from the census's own surveys and conclusions, and they're right about this, that it looks like the threat of a big undercount because of the citizenship question is like, this is a real problem and the government should just get rid of the citizenship question, not ask it in 2020 as a way of heading off this threat of people not responding. There are also five immigrant rights groups, and they join in the arguments I was just making, and they also are making a claim that this violates their constitutional rights to equal protection under the law because it's they are accusing the Trump administration of discriminating, of, of deliberately trying to lower the response rates among immigrants and groups like Latinos who are networked in with immigrants. So those, And then there's an Administrative Procedures Act claim, which is like more statutory and boring, but really important because the sort of fundamental question here is like, why did Wilbur Ross, the tech Secretary of Commerce, introduce the citizenship question? Does he have a legitimate and plausible rationale for it? Or were his actions in doing this what we call arbitrary and capricious? In other words, the government has no plausible, good stated rationale. And so a federal court can intervene, even though we usually would defer to an agency, a federal agency making a decision like this. Wasn't it particularly insulting because their their stated rationale is just so preposterous yes. and in fact contra to their the, even even if their stated rationale were true it's actually against their own policies that they wanted to help them with voting rights right so what happened the voting rights act a voting rights act which they hate and don't want to enforce Right. So when Wilbur Ross introduced the citizenship question last spring, he said he was doing it and he told Congress this, speaking of lying to Congress, uh, which we were discussing earlier in the Michael Cohen context, he told Congress he was doing this solely in response to a request from the Justice Department, which needs citizenship data to enforce the Voting Rights Act. So, okay, so first of all, in all the 53 years of enforcing the Voting Rights Act, the Justice Department has never before said that it needed citizenship data from the census. We have this data from what's called the American Community Survey, which is this annual survey we give to a sample of American households. And also the government can't identify a single case that it can't bring because it doesn't have this data. But but more importantly, in the course of the litigation and all the discovery, you know, the evidence that has come out, it became clear that the real sequence of events here was that Bannon talked to Ross. Ross started badgering the Justice Department to make this request. The Justice Department didn't really respond for a while. Chris Kobach shows up in the story, follows up with Ross. Chris Kobach, you know... Uh, famously um, a proponent of the myth that voter fraud is widespread, not true, just ran for governor and lost in, in Kansas. 
Ross keeps asking and then has a private phone call with then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, at which point the Justice Department finally coughs up this request. And then the sort of kicker is that very recently in the litigation, the plaintiffs were allowed to take the deposition, which just means like ask a bunch of questions outside of a courtroom of John Gore. So John Gore at the time was the head of the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department, like the guy who's in charge of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. And he was asked in in his deposition, do you agree that it's not necessary to have this citizenship question on the census to enforce the Voting Rights Act? And John Gore said, yes, I agree with that. So that was sort of the last shred of plausibility that this is the real explanation. And Wilbur Ross has never explained um, what he presumably was really thinking, because when Judge Furman, the presiding judge of the trial, tried to order his deposition, the Supreme Court blocked Ross from testifying. And so we have this odd posture here where the plaintiffs... um, the you know the especially for their equal protection claim the way you prove discriminatory intent is like you ask the person who made the decision like what was your intention and yet and that's a high bar right this is it's why very did the supreme hard. court why, why did the supreme court forbid the ross testimony i didn't understand that that is an excellent question they did not explain why they blocked that order the only shred of information we have was that justice neil gorsuch wrote an opinions uh, agree- joined only by clarence thomas in which he basically said this whole thing is ridiculous like ross was just cutting red tape and disagreeing with his staff that's completely normal the breathtaking thing, at least to me, about Gorsuch's opinion is that he never mentioned Ross's t- testimony to Congress, which was not true. So it's as if that just like is not part of the record in Gorsuch's opinion, which is extremely odd. But yeah, we don't – the Supreme Court has done – other weird things in this case. They already have agreed to hear um, this question of what evidence the district court judge, Judge Furman, is allowed to include in his ruling, even though Judge Furman hasn't ruled yet. It's all sort of out of order what's going on. And the government keeps desperately trying to just prevent Judge Furman from issuing any kind of ruling. And it seems like the obvious reason for that is the government would just like this to go straight to the Supreme Court and not have the underlying fact-finding and then an opinion by the Second Circuit, the Court of Appeals, that is going to make it look bad. It's all sort of like the travel ban case in where you have, you know, President Trump saying all this stuff that makes it seem like he had this anti-Muslim motive. And then the courts try to wrestle with like, well, we don't usually look under the hood of the government. And yet the Trump administration is making it really hard to swallow the stated rationales that it's giving. Like, what do we do here? John, I want to end with you on this. We've known from the first days of the Trump administration that one of the biggest challenges it would it would pose to the country and to government would be to the integrity of data and to uh, the use of that data for to make policy and to you know to to establish certain agreement about what things are true and what are not uh, from the start of the Trump administration we had websites disappearing data being buried reports being buried language not allowed to be used and now we have in the case of the census the possibility of a uh, for largely political reasons, um, an attempt to undercount the country in order to bring political benefit to areas which are tend to be whiter and more Republican and to increase the political power of those areas and those congressional districts uh, and potentially get more resources to them. Undoing the damage to 
data and to trust in data is much harder than doing the damage. Um, and what I want, I'm interested in your thoughts on are is that the cons- if you're a conservative, I mean, one of the things about being a conservative, which I like to think of myself as being as a conservative is you want to preserve, like it's to preserve okay. things. It's to sense that there is an, the, the, the way things are being done or they're being done for a pretty good reason. You tamper with it at your peril. You, you try to preserve things. You try to keep things. You try to not, not blow things up and not disorder them. And the Trump administration, which I don't think of as being a Trump conservative at all, but radical in the way that a lot of the modern Republican party is radical is not interested in that. And is, is, you know, engaged in a campaign of destruction and discrediting of data gathering and data collection and data distribution that's extremely damaging. What, as citizens, or what, how, how do you think we're going to go about restoring faith in that and restoring credibility and ensuring that, you know, we have government data that's trustworthy and government bureaucrats who can be trusted with the data and that the government isn't going to abuse it and it's being put to the right use? Because right now, that credibility is vanishing. Well, I have a, a couple of unfocused thoughts on this. The first is that I think one of the things, and we should probably keep a list uh, and think about this more intentionally, but I think there is a basket of thing, a basket of responses to the actions and uh, both the commission and omission uh, of the Trump era that is actually strengthening some of these ideas. Um, I I go back to a conversation I had with a Republican senator who said uh, very close to the inauguration that he was going back to shore up his views about why he believed in free trade, not because he had doubts, but because he knew that idea was going to be under assault from the president and he was going to want to stand up and make an argument and make a counter argument. And so he was what he had just taken on faith, he now wanted to make sure he was marshalling the strongest point. So it made him a, a smarter advocate of that underlying, those underlying principles in which he still believed. So we've seen uh, in voting in, the, in uh, the midterms, we saw extraordinary turnout as people fought to speak their voice after having become sort of apathetic about voting. That's obviously a very broad brush, but you know what I'm saying. We've seen a, a, a record turnout by people of, um, I mean, in terms of candidates, people of color, women coming in on the, on the Democratic side almost almost entirely, but um, as a response to. So in this case, I think you could imagine a situation where uh, someday both conservatives and liberals come to say, uh, we need to be even more concerned with the quality of our data because it's been under assault here. And, And I think the conservative case for why you want good data is you may not believe in, let's say liberals use uh, accurate data f- to special plead for various groups. And as a conservative, you're against that because you think that overdoes what government is supposed to do. You want to make the case based on your argument about what government should do, not based on the fact that the numbers have been cooked. You want to make the case based on what you actually believe, which is that the federal government has gotten outside of its boundaries and that that has created a case where basically is all about special pleading. And once you make it all about special pleading, it becomes about political muscle and not the efficient efficient allocation of federal resources. That's the grounds you want to fight on. You don't want to fight on the grounds that we got monkeyed numbers because uh, because somebody was messing around with the numbers in a previous administration. I mean, that all is totally valid, and I I wish that I thought it was a widely shared value right now. But I got to say, so, you know, 
The census is one of those topics that, like, is a little sleepy. I mean, I had to drag myself into writing about it. But in the course of doing my reporting and researching, it is so important and crucial. It's like a fundamental pillar of American democracy because it determines political representation and – and how we give out money. And if we break it in 2020, if it's messed up, it's going to be messed up for the whole decade. It's like long term we're, we're talking here. This is exactly the kind of, you know, real world breaking the government implications that just is get does not get enough attention right now as we're all like freaking out about the thing that Donald Trump said about climate change or pardoning Manafort or whatever. And Meanwhile, here's this like real potential um, long-term threat to just government functioning going on. And the other thing is like what is really motivating the Trump administration here? If we have an undercount of um, immigrants and Latinos and other people who get nervous about the census because of the citizenship question, that is going to make – that will itself shift political power in some way toward rural, mostly Republican regions. And if the real underlying agenda here is that what what people like Chris Kobach, who's talked about this, want to do is change apportionment so that we no longer count people who are not citizens, well, that will just like double the impact I was just talking about, even more power for rural Republican voters. Um, And it would be a fundamental shift in how we do apportionment, like one person, one vote in the 14th Amendment for federal elections. And according to the practices of the state has just meant exactly that, like you count by population. But, you know, you can make an argument that like we should only count citizens. Only citizens should be thought of as having political representation in this country. And that's the kind of like wonky but hugely important underlying shift that is at stake here. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a wonky but extremely important drink at your weekend cocktail party, John Dickerson. What will you be chattering about? I'll be chattering about a Reuters story from um, from South Korea in which uh, I learned that South Koreans are jailing themselves uh, deliberately in order oh, to yeah. escape, uh, escape daily life. Now, before you think, uh, as my family did when I talked about this at the dinner table, that they're actually putting themselves in real jails because I didn't explain it very well at dinner. It turns out, no, this is a this is a fake jail, but it is um, so a faux jail. But um, one 28-year-old office worker from South Korea who paid $90 to spend 24 hours locked up in a mock prison said, this prison gives me a sense of freedom. Anyway, I don't know how much this is um, sweeping South Korea by storm, but it, it amused me and it also – it didn't well, I guess it interested me. Um, but it reminds me also of one of my favorite poems, which is uh, Wordsworth's Nuns Fret Not in Their Convent's Narrow Rooms, which is, a, uh, which is a great poem in and of itself. But it is one in which the, it's a sonnet and it follows the form. So it's all about basically constriction giving you excessive freedom that in fact it's – that if you if you have too much liberty, uh, that you don't know what to do. There is contentment in having structure, and then of course a sonnet itself is a, a piece of structure, and so form follows function. God, I could, uh, we could talk for days on the subject. It is such an interesting subject, and the psychosocial implications of it for all of us. Frank Gehry once said his hardest job that he ever was given was um, was a project where he was told just build whatever you want. <laughs> 
no parameters. Yeah. And also, this is a piece of random information, but there's a line in the poem about um, uh, bees that murmur, uh, bees that sort of bloom, high as the highest peaks of Furnace Fells, murmur in the, uh, by the hour in Fox Club Bells or whatever. But anyway, I, I never knew what a fox, or I knew what a Fox Club Bell was, but this summer I actually hiked up to where there, there was Fox Club, and sure enough, what was buzzing around inside the Fox Club Bells? But bees. So uh, that's a really uh, piece of important personal news. It's buzzy. Buzzy from Dickerson, as always. Emily, what is your foxglove belly chatter? I feel like I'm stealing this chatter from you because I know that you recommended your hustle, the podcast, before I did on our show. But just an amazingly heartwarming piece of news last week that Erlon Woods, who is the charismatic, incredibly likable co-host of that show, has had his sentence commuted by Governor Jerry Brown in California. There were a whole bunch of commutations and Erlon Woods was among them. And so he should be out of prison really soon if he's not already. And I, what struck me in this letter from Jerry Brown was, I mean, I don't want to make light of this crime, but um, Woods has been in prison for 20 years and his sentence was 31 years to life. And what he actually did was hold a gun on someone who, while someone else pepper sprayed um, the robbery victim. And I mean, I'm not saying that that's like a good thing to do by any means. I can totally imagine that it would have been scary and threatening. But a 31 year to life sentence just seems out of proportion. And um, I hope Erlon Woods' transition to life outside of prison walls goes well for him. He's an extraordinary host of that show. And I, I just think it's a that show is the great podcast of our time. I really i i i've not I haven't listened to every episode, but every episode I've listened to, I have been so moved by and so moved by him as a as a narrator, as a framer, as a as a human, just as a human being, and the connection that he and the other host Nigel Poor have. It's extraordinary, and and I heard um, listening to Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, Ear Hustle is part of Radiotopia. And I heard the host of 99% Invisible, Robin Mars, saying that, that Erlon Woods would have a job producing Ear Hustle on the outside. He'll no longer be in San Quentin, but he'll still be producing Ear Hustle for the Radiotopia network. And that is great news. My chatter is about an extraordinarily dismal piece of journalism. Well, amazing piece of journalism about a dismal story. I yeah. think both of you guys, I think I saw you both commenting on it on Twitter. The Miami Herald has done an extraordinary investigation of Jeffrey Epstein, a financier, very rich South Florida financier, who actually I think has given up his U.S. citizenship in, in sleazy ways, who is a child molester, a child a predator, a pedophile of the highest order, who throughout, it seems like the 90s and early 2000s, preyed on 14 underage girls, preyed on underage girls in various ways. He sought out girls who were vulnerable, girls who had uh, problems in their family, girls who didn't have a lot of people looking after them, and lured them to his mansion and had them give him massages and then engage in sexual activity, raped some, uh, forced others to engage in different kinds of sexual activity. So that is terrible enough. But what was shocking in this is the way in which the justice system in South Florida bent to accommodate him and bent to make sure that he, you know, that was, even if, after it was clear that he was a somebody who deserved a very harsh punishment and very, the public light, he deserved the public light shown on him and to be humiliated 
and for it to be exposed and to, for his victims to have their chance to speak out. The justice system hid his crime, allowed him to plead to uh, a ridiculous, much smaller crime, which didn't in any way capture the the horror of what he did. It never allowed his victims to speak up. It never informed his victims of what was going on. And this was abetted by Alexander Acosta, now a member of the Trump cabinet, as well as a lot of Epstein's lawyers, including Ken Starr, Alan Dershowitz, and also seems to have been abetted by Epstein's friends, who included a lot of powerful people, including Donald Trump and Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew. It's just a disgusting story. It makes you furious at the way that justice uh, can be bought by extremely rich people, even people who, who, who are the worst of the worst, and he's the worst of the worst. So read the story in the Miami Herald, and, and Jeffrey Epstein should be drummed from all polite society, and I, I, hope, he, I hope some great misfortune uh, falls upon him because he has done nothing to, to merit redemption or to seek forgiveness for the terrible things he's done to these young women. Props to Julie Brown at the Miami Herald for an amazing feat of reporting in that story. Yeah. Listener chatter. So many great listener chatters again this week. You've been sending them to us at, at SlateGabFest on Twitter and sometimes emailing us at GabFest at Slate.com. And also I would encourage you please to keep sending conundrums for our conundrum show on December 12th. Also by tweeting at SlateGabFest or emailing us at GabFest at Slate.com. This one comes from Matt Cady, who is at, at Real Mateo Feo. And Matt Cady points us to a lovely little YouTube video. It's very charming. I watched it with my my uh, my son yesterday. And it's a YouTube video about the transition from rotary phones to push button phones. And what happens how you when you have a push button phone, how do you design the push button pattern? And why is it the shape that it is? And it turns out that once we were shifting from rotary to push button, there was all kinds of discussion about what the shape of that that pattern should be. And there were all different alternatives. There's clock shapes. There's there's stair step shapes. There's shapes where the numbers are upside down. You know, they go top to bottom. There's some bottom to top. There's some that are in rows. And they the bell bell system tested them all out and ultimately ended up with the shape that we have. And it's a really fun video about how about human factors about how how we figure out how humans best use things and then design things to fit them so it's super cute that is our show for today the gabfest is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is bridget dunlap you should follow us on twitter at slate gabfest and as i said please tweet conundrums to us the next week or so for emily bazelon john dickerson and david plotz we will talk to you next week Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 